Today, we're in Philippians chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses uh, 12 to 16. And even if the sermon's mediocre, these verses are not. They're really great. So, Philippians 3, starting in verse 12. Let me read these for us. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the word of the Lord. So, my wife accuses me of being dramatic, and I probably am, but there was a day that changed my life. It transformed the way I viewed the world. I don't know if it was this pivotal for you, as as pivotal as it was for me, but it was the first day of algebra. Because when you get to algebra, you know, before algebra, up until that point in your life, numbers are numbers and letters are letters, and they each do their separate thing. But then you get to algebra, And I'll never forget Miss Eller walking across the room to the board and taking an ordinary math problem and putting the letter A right in the middle of it. And suddenly I realized this is not just a math lesson, it's a philosophy lesson. You know, like letters are now numbers. This is kind of uh, crazy. But that's not the most important lesson I learned that day. You see, I was racking my brains trying to understand how is it that letters can be numbers, but I noticed that there were three students in the class that seemed to have no trouble at all grasping this concept. They were the three uh, smartest students in my eighth grade class, and they were, all three of them, girls. And I tell you, it really seemed like they were just born with an innate knowledge to comprehend algebraic uh, problems. My guy friends and I were born with an innate knowledge of shoving pencils up our noses. It It was like, how is this so easy for you? And that's when I learned another lesson that Women actually mature, both intellectually and physically, but also emotionally, not only earlier than men, but faster than men. And men catch up later in life. At least that's what they say, you see. I found out after high school and college and low all these years later that it's not true. Men never really catch up at all. Women (laughs) and the race to maturity are just miles and miles ahead of us men. Well, maturity is the concept that Paul brings up in these verses, If you look at verses 15 and 16, he says, let those of us who are mature think in this way. And he's so confident that this is what mature Christians think. He says, and if in anything you think otherwise, then God will reveal that also to you. Paul, thankfully, is not talking about intellectual or emotional maturity or all the guys would just, you know, zone out. What he's talking about is spiritual maturity, which is the job of every Christian, man or woman. So Paul tells us, basically, if you're mature, think like this. Do this. And so three points this morning, three things that a mature Christian does. A mature Christian recognizes that they are not yet perfect. A mature Christian is straining forward, and a mature Christian has their eyes on the prize. We'll talk about all three of those. But first, a mature Christian realizes that they are not yet perfect. Look at the first thing that Paul says in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. 
The question is, what is the this to which Paul is referring? When he says, I have not obtained this, and he says, I press on to make it my own, what is the this, what is the it to which Paul is referring? One thing that we're sure it's not is righteousness. Because if you remember last week, as we looked at verses 1 to 11, Paul spent a lot of time talking about justification. That is how someone can become righteous with God. And Paul's answer for that is that a righteousness we have comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, which depends on faith. And Paul has faith. He's not wondering if he has faith. Paul knows the doctrine of justification by faith alone, uh, through, by grace alone, through faith alone. He knows all this. Scott last week shared with us a definition of justification from the Shorter Catechism. Justification is the act of God's free grace whereby he pardons our sins and he accepts us as righteous for the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to us. So that's justification. And Paul is not saying, I haven't obtained that. He knows that he's obtained that. The this that Paul is referring to is in verse 10, which says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, attaining the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying there's more of Christ to know. Paul is saying there's more of his power to experience. I can become even more like Christ and one day I will share even in his resurrection. So Paul's not talking about justification. The theological words he's talking about are sanctification and glorification. And you might say that the gospel has three phases, justification, sanctification, glorification. And each of these three phases uh, deal with a different dimension of our, of our sin. You see, justification delivers us from the penalty of sin. When you're justified by faith in Christ, what happens is the penalty of sin is removed. The, the righteousness of Christ is given to you and God is not going to punish you. His wrath will not fall on you. The penalty of sin is taken care of. With sanctification, what's taken care of is the power of sin. And this is progressive over the course of your life. And then finally, with, with glorification, we will one day be saved from even the very presence of sin. We'll live in a sinless world where sin is completely inconceivable. And interestingly, in chapter 3 of Philippians, you, you see all three of these parts. Uh, verses 1 through 11 talk about justification. Next week, verses 17 through 21 talk about glorification. And our verses today talk about sanctification, being saved from the power of sin. A classic definition of sanctification also comes from the Shorter Catechism. It's two questions after the one that Scott read last week, and I'll read that to you. Question 35, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die into sin and to live under righteousness. So, if you're listening closely, uh, it says justification is an act of God's free grace, but sanctification is the work of God's free grace. And that's a small word, but theologians care about small words. And so what they're trying to say is justification is a moment. When God justifies you, it's done. You place your faith in the gospel, you're saved. That's it. You're justified. Imputed righteousness of Christ to you. Justification is an act of God's grace, but sanctification is a work of God's grace. This means it's a process. It's playing out over time. And yet, even though there's a difference between the two, they really are inseparable. How do you know you're justified? Well, if you're being sanctified, right? The, the, the fruit of your justification is sanctification. 
John Calvin described it like this. He said, Christ is the Son, justification is light, and sanctification is heat. You can't have one without the other. And we all know this in Arizona, right? Because it's not only bright outside, but it's also a thousand degrees. So uh, if there is a sun outside, and there is, you will feel heat with the light. This is the, the idea. So if sanctification is a process, if it's a work, what's the goal? It's to be renewed after the image of God, enabled more and more to die to sin and to live under righteousness. Or in a word, it's to be made perfect. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 48. Jesus says, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's a high bar, right? C.S. Lewis commenting on this verse, he says, some people think that Jesus is saying, unless you are perfect, I will not help you. But if that were the case, then we would all be doomed because none of us are perfect. No, Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is saying, C.S. Lewis paraphrases, the only help I will give is help to become perfect. You may want something less, but I will give you nothing less. And C.S. Lewis tells the story about how when his tooth was hurting, uh, he wouldn't go to his mom because he knew uh, he wanted relief for the pain, but he knew that his mom would not only give him pain medicine, but the next day she would take him to the dentist. And the dentist will not be satisfied with just giving you an aspirin. They're going to tinker around in, on this tooth. And when they tinker on that tooth, they'll, tinkle, they'll tinker on all the teeth. It's like, a, it's like a Dr. Seuss book or something. So perfection is what the dentist wants from you. That's what God wants from you. George MacDonald had a, another way to describe it as a, a parable of a, a house. He says, think of your life as like a living house. And God comes into your life. And God is going to improve the house. And you agree with God that there should be some projects done around the house. Like there's a leaky faucet or, you know, you want to tear up the carpet or do the small sort of, maybe you need, even need a roof change or something like that. But suddenly what you realize is that God is starting to knock down the walls, right? He's starting to put up towers. He's expanding the backyard into a courtyard. He's making you into something grander than you thought. You want it to be a little casita, and God is making you into a castle. God's plan for you is far more grand than you envisioned. You see, this is, this is the point of realizing you're not yet perfect. It helps you to avoid two mistakes that Christians common, commonly make. One is the result of pride, the other is the result of despair. Some Christians have pride in their progress. They might say, like, sin's not an issue for me anymore. I actually know some Christians who said, I've been justified. And because I've been justified, sin's not a problem in my life. Christ took care of that. So why should I confess my sin? Jesus forgave all my sins, so I'm good with sin. I don't really need to worry about sin anymore. They miss what 1 John 1.8 says, which is, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Martin Luther famously said in his first theses, this is 95 theses, he said, when our Lord and Savior said, repent, he willed that all of life should be repentance. We don't need to repent for forgiveness or for justification, but we do for our sanctification. Some people have pride, but other people have despair. They say, well, if the goal is to become a castle and I'm just a casita, if I have to be perfect, well, I'm never going to get there. So what's the point in putting in all the effort? You know, like I'll just, I'm content to be where I am. God accepts me as I am. You know, my sin magnifies his grace. To do all the, you know, home improvement stuff would be legalistic or something 
like that. Well, they miss what Paul says when he says, but I press on. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The proper response of the gospel is to work hard for your sanctification. And here's an important point. You are not saved by works. We're talking about justification. Your works have nothing to do with it. In fact, your works are exactly the problem. (laughs) Your works can't save you. You're not saved by works, but you are saved for works. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And he says, it's not your own doing. It's not the result of works. But then he says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which he prepared that we should do. So you're not saved by your works, but you are saved to do good works that Christ has laid out in front of you every day of your life. But also it says we are his workmanship. And you know what that means is that you are God's fixer-upper. You're the great DIY project. God is uh, working on you. Actually, I guess it's not a DIY because then it would all be on your effort, right? It's probably better to say what Paul says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you. You do need to work, but God is working in you. He's renovating your life. So the first thing a mature Christian says is, I am not yet perfect. I haven't obtained it yet, but that is the direction I'm going. And the second thing a mature Christian does is they strain forward. Paul goes on in verse 13. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Christians forget what's behind and they strain forward to what's ahead. And for Paul, this is all one motion. It's all one idea. That's why he says, but one thing I do, It's very dramatic and very emphatic. He's saying, one thing, this is the one thing I'm doing. And he goes on to use the image of a foot race. So this would have been something the Philippians would have been uh, familiar with, you know. It'd be like me using a Super Bowl reference or something. And if you're the sort of person who's like, I hate it when pastors use sports analogies because I'm not interested. Well, it started with the Apostle Paul, so you kind of have to blame him. But anyway, Paul is saying, look, it's it's like a race, okay, my roommate in college ran the, uh, the 800 uh, meter dash and he actually set the record for it in college. One time I pranked him and tried to run down the hall. That was stupid. <laughs> I made it like two steps and then like this body just, you know, lurches onto my back. But anyway, my friend running the 800 meter dash and anyone running the 800 meter dash would not get 700 meters in and say, you know, I'm really satisfied with the 87.5% I've ran on this so far. I think I'm going to kind of slow it down. No, they would say, I, I don't care how far I've made it. That's where I'm going. And that's the point of running a race. It's not what's behind that matters. It's what in, is in front. They're straining forward. That verb Paul uses, that word straining, it's, it's pretty graphic. It's like stretching. It's like every fiber of his being is just lurching forward towards the equivalent it kind of comes into our language when we, uh, when we say someone's on the home stretch, you know, guts busting, sucking eggs. That's what my dad would say. He ran track and he always said sucking eggs. I don't know. Breathing heavy, you know, everything you've got. What's important to note here is that Paul, when he says forgetting what's behind, he's, he's not only or even primarily talking about the bad things or the hard things about his walk with Christ. You see, when Paul says, I'm forgetting what's behind, he's not saying like, I'm overcoming my hardships. 
the setbacks, the mistakes, the sin, the persecution. He's not saying, I'm not letting any of my sin drag me down. What Paul is referencing is, is in fact, his own progress. What Paul is saying is, the progress I've made up to this point, I'm, I'm forgetting about that. I'm going forward. I'm not dwelling on how far I've already come. He's, he's forgetting not necessarily his badness, but his goodness. He's saying, I'm not content with, with, with the progress I've made up to this point. Like a runner, I'm sprinting ahead. And if anybody had a, had a reason, really, to be satisfied with what they had done, it would be the Apostle Paul. No one ran the race like him. You might say he had a great track record, you see. But uh, that was a bad joke, I know. But, but Paul, think about it. He's writing this letter around 62 AD. So this would have been probably the final five years of his life. And Paul the Apostle uh, did probably more than any other Christian in existence uh, for the sake of the gospel. He had traveled around 10,000 miles. He had completed three major missionary journeys, planted probably about 14 churches, but maybe more. He had performed miracles and witnessed miracles. He had seen people come to Christ. He had discipled people. He even authored numerous letters that would become the New Testament. Like if anybody ever had the right to say, I think I can just kind of slow and coast to the end, it'd be the Apostle Paul. We would look at Paul and say, that guy deserves to sit down. Like he should retire. I mean, he, he's really earned it. But that's not how Paul thinks. How does Paul think about it? Well, he gives us a glimpse into how he thinks about it at the end of the book of Romans. Romans was written a couple years before the book of Philippians. And uh, Paul, writing this book to the Romans, at the end of his third missionary journey, it's before he gets arrested, uh, he says this at the end of the letter in chapter 15, verse 23 and 24 of Romans. Here's how Paul thinks about the final five years of his life. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, the church in Rome, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. <laughs> I love that Paul says, I don't have any more room for work in these regions, like the eastern half of the Roman Empire. <laughs> you know, Paul is an old man, but he's not retiring. In fact, what he's doing is he's saying, now that I've evangelized the east, all that's left is to evangelize the west. Let's go after it. I'm going to go to Spain, which is the end of the known world at the time. His massive, beautiful letter to the, the, the Romans uh, is, is actually just a large support letter. Will you support me? Will you be my missionary base as I keep going to Spain. What's the point I'm making here? That all great men of God move west, like Scott Brown and myself. No, I'm just kidding. The, the, great, the point I'm making here is that Paul is pressing on. He's not letting any of his achievements satisfy him. He's not even letting a lifetime of ministry cause him to ease up. Instead, he's thinking these next five years, this will be my contribution to the church. I will keep going. And so the question that I think the text is asking us this morning is, are you pressing on? Many of you have lived wonderful, beautiful lives. You've ran the race well. You've been pastors. You've been missionaries. Uh, you've, you've been fathers and mothers. And, and you've been faithful in the workplace. And you've witnessed to friends and to family members. And you've lived beautiful lives worthy of the gospel. But are you pressing on? Or are you coasting? Paul will not coast. 
He will not allow a lifetime of progress to stop him from making more. I love the words of T.S. Eliot in his poem. It's the second of the four quartets. He says, old men ought to be explorers. Here, there does not matter. We must be still and still moving into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion. Old men ought to be explorers. Don't burn out. Press on. We see this in Paul, but we also see this in the life of other godly men like Moses. Consider Deuteronomy 34, verse 7. I love this verse. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. His eye was undimmed. His vigor was unabated. That's the last thing they say about Moses. Mature Christians strain forward. And that raises the last question this morning, which is like, why? What drives a, a guy like Paul, who's lived in his entire life sharing the gospel, planning churches, reaching people for Christ, to keep having that hunger, that ambition until the very end? And so mature Christians do this. They not only recognize that they're not already perfect, they not, all, they not only strain forward, but they keep their eyes on the prize. In verse 14, Paul says, one more time, I press on, but this time he explains that he has a goal. He says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he's, he's going towards the goal. The goal is for the prize, and the prize is what? It's the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So that phrase, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that's kind of the prize that we're talking about. And it's a really rich phrase. You could preach a whole sermon on that. I'm not a mean person, so I won't do that to you. But I do want to look at the last three words, in Christ Jesus. What is this prize that Paul is after? We can learn two things about it from those three words, in Christ Jesus. The first thing you can learn about the prize is that it comes through union with Christ. I told you a while ago that theologians love little words. Well, here's a little word, in. In Christ. In Greek, the word for in is in. It sounds the exact same, so now you know some Greek. But in Christ, what's interesting is that Paul, in all of his letters, he never uses the word Christian to describe believers. But over 200 times, he uses this phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And another 32 times, he'll use uh, words like with Christ. In fact, Paul actually invents new words in Greek to describe the reality of union with Christ. You've probably heard phrases like crucified with Christ or raised with Christ or buried with Christ or seated with Christ. And in all of those examples, what Paul is doing is actually taking this prefix in Greek with and he's, he's, he's mashing it together to form new words. It's like he needs a new vocabulary to express this idea, this new idea of union with Christ. So what is union with Christ? Kevin DeYoung writes about it and he says this, Union with Christ may be the most important doctrine you've never heard of. As Christians, we know that we've been saved by Christ and we should look like Christ and we can have a relationship with Christ, but we almost never consider how all of this depends on our union with Christ. The whole of our salvation can be summed up with reference to this reality. He says, union with Christ is not a single specific blessing we receive in our salvation, rather, it is the best phrase to describe all the blessings of salvation. 
So earlier I said, you can summarize the gospel in, uh, in three phases, justification, sanctification, glorification. Well, you could do that, or you could just summarize the gospel with one phrase, union with Christ. It's the shortest way to explain the gospel. John Murray writes, nothing is more central or more basic than union with Christ. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Nothing is more central. So this union with Christ thing, I hope you're gathering, it's kind of important. What does it mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to have union with Christ? I'll give you two illustrations of it. The first one's kind of silly, but I had a friend in college uh, who was the mascot for the university. And I went to Wingate University in North Carolina. We were the Bulldogs. And the mascot was uh, Victor E., Okay, which is lame, but that was the name of the mascot. And my friend was a really lame person, like super not cool, you know, like a total dweeb. And that's why we were good friends. But um, it was, it was kind of strange though. Like, and, and they always made sure to keep the identity of the mascot like hidden, you know. So no one on campus knew who Victor E. was, but I did because he was my lame friend. But anyway, so when my friend was in the costume, when he was in Victor E., he became a celebrity, you know? It's like kids ran up to him to hug him, like girls would stop and take selfies with him instead of recoiling in fear, you know? Like football players were giving him high fives and, and you know, hugging him. The president of the university is like putting his arm around him. It's like my friend, when he was in victory, he shared all the benefits, all the privileges of being Victor E. And it's a silly illustration, but that's kind of what it's like to be in Christ. If you are in Christ, then God, when he sees you, he sees you in his son. He loves you as he loves his son. He lavishes his kindness on you as he would his son. He will treat you no worse than he treats Jesus. All the benefits of Christ come with our union to him. The difference, of course, is that your union with Christ is your truer identity. It's not a costume. You're not masquerading. God sees the real you who you actually are. He doesn't have rose-colored glasses. If you're united to Christ, then God treats you as his son because you really are that. Another way to describe union with Christ is like uh, thinking of a marriage, which is a sort of union. When you marry, there are no masks, right? There are no costumes. All masks are off. And your identity changes. Women know this better than men because most of you will literally go and change your name, which I'm sure can be kind of like an identity crisis, probably. I mean, I would imagine it'd be for me if I had to go change my license and passport and all my, you know, everything. I'm a different person. But even for men in marriage, it doesn't matter if you're changing your name legally, your identity is changing. When you get married, you become a different person. However, the different person you become is yourself, right? In marriage, what happens is when you get married, you know, the married version of you is suddenly different. And now you have to learn what it means. And often it takes the rest of your life. But who are you now that you're united to another person? This is what sanctification is. Becoming who you already are. You're justified in Christ. You're, you're united to him. You're a son of the king. And now you have to learn what does that mean? How can I become who I am? One illustration I saw a theologian use was it's like a little kid wearing their dad's uh, giant T-shirt, you know, so big it's like a gown. 
And what that kid needs to do is mature up into the shirt that he's in, right? It's sort of like that. The prize is union with Christ. That's how we get it. That's the first thing about it. But the second thing about the prize, probably the most important thing about the prize, and the last thing I'll share with you this morning, is that the prize is not only about union with Christ, but because it's about union, it's about a person. The prize is a person. The prize is Jesus. Paul tells us in verses 8 to 10 that his all-consuming desire is to know Christ. And in fact, that's what Jesus says in John 17. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Sanctification is knowing Christ. It's not just moral improvement, but it is actually getting to know a person. Dane Ortland is a pastor. He's the author of a book called Gentle and Lowly. You may have heard of it. And this past week, he wrote an article for Crossway uh, entitled, Growth in Christ is Not Just Personal Improvement. And it's a really great article. In fact, I recommend that uh, you read it, maybe this afternoon, called Growth in Christ is Not Just Personal Improvement by Dane uh, Ortland. But I want to share with you something he wrote because I think it's really profound. Essentially, he's addressing the issue of why is it we feel bored in our, in our pursuit of Christ? Or why do we feel defeated? Or why is it that we can't seem to make progress in, in knowing Christ more? And here's what he says. When Christopher Columbus reached the Caribbean in 1492, he named the natives Indians, thinking he had reached what Europeans of the time referred to as the Indies, China, Japan, and India. In fact, he was nowhere close. He wasn't close to South or East Asia. In his path were vast regions of land, unexplored and uncharted, of which Columbus knew nothing. He assumed the world was smaller than it was. Have we made a similar mistake with regard to Jesus Christ? Are there vast tracts of who he is, according to biblical revelation, that are unexplored? Have we unintentionally reduced him to manageable, predictable portions? Have we been looking at a junior varsity, decaffeinated, one-dimensional Jesus of our own making, thinking that we're looking at the real Jesus? Have we snorkeled in the shallows, thinking now that we've hit the bottom on the Pacific? He concludes, make your growth journey a journey into Christ himself. Explore uncharted regions of who he is. This is the call of the gospel. This is the call of sanctification, to know Christ better because Christ is unsearchable. You can't be bored with him. For Paul, it's not just about becoming a better person or racking up accolades. He had tried that in a previous life and it didn't satisfy him. No, for Paul, it's about the thrill of knowing Jesus. It's about the joy of being in love. It's about the adventure of exploring the riches of God and our union with him. Old men ought to be explorers. Here, there does not matter. We must be still and still moving into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion. Let's press on together. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you uh, for giving us the example of Paul the Apostle who was pressing on not satisfied with the accomplishments, many would say, that that were good enough because he was chasing you to know you better. 
And God, my prayer for myself this morning as I read this text and for the church is that we would press on, that we would be excited, that we would be curious, that we would be captivated by the grand adventure of knowing you better, exploring who you are. We ask God you would give us the special grace and help us to do that in your holy name. Amen.